Come with me in your Bible this morning to Luke chapter 22. Luke's gospel in the 22nd chapter. We're going to have communion at the end of my message this morning. But I want to read to you from the time when Jesus met with his disciples at what we call the Last Supper, the communion table, the Passover feast. And in verse 14 of Luke 22, we read, When the hour had come, he, Jesus, sat down and the twelve apostles with him. Then he said to them, With fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom comes. And he took the bread, gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to them saying, This is my body which is given for you. It's very important to note those two words, for you. This is my body which is given for you. He's talking to his disciples of that time, but he's also talking to the disciples that would be raised out of their ministry from that time onwards. This is my body which is given for you. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed again for you. Jesus said with fervent desire, I have desired, with fervent desire, I have desired. He didn't just desire, but with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. What exactly is Passover? Pastor John touched on this on Good Friday, if you were here, and he talked a little about the cross and the blood and the, the significance of the Passover festival and took us back to where Passover actually began. But let me go back there for just a moment this morning. In the closing chapters of the book of Genesis and then in the opening chapters of the book of Exodus, we, we, we read that God's people are in bondage. God's people, the nation of Israel are slaves under a despotic Pharaoh. And in the closing chapters of the book of Exodus, Jacob, in chapter 32 of Exodus, which is about a bit over halfway through, he wrestles with the angel from heaven. His name is Jacob, but at that point, heaven changes his name to Israel. And that's where Israel was born. And so Israel had 12 sons. And in the closing chapters of Genesis, Israel and his 12 sons and their wives and their kids find themselves in Egypt because of a famine in the land of Canaan, which today is known as the land of Israel. And in the closing chapters of Genesis and into the opening chapters of Exodus, we find that they multiplied, they expanded, and they enlarged their nation to be approximately 3 million people. It took over 400 years for that to happen. But now that nation is under the impression of the Egyptian government and our free slave labor. But it's interesting, we, we find that in the middle of them being oppressed, in the middle of them being bound and abused and manipulated and controlled, you know, which happens a lot today as well, not just with God's people, but with people in society, they're abused. 
They're, they're manipulated, they're controlled, they're, they're mishandled, they're treated as less than human. In the midst of, of the pain that had arisen in the nation of Israel, we find an interesting thing happens. Hope and light breaks through. And in Exodus chapter 2 and verse 23, we read now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. Then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage. There's a lot of groaning in society today. There's a lot of oppression in society today. There's a lot of people in pain today. There's a lot of people suffering and struggling under all kinds of oppressive clouds in their life today, just like it happened to the people of God back then. And they groaned because of their bondage and they cried out and their cry came up to God because of the bondage. Let me tell you something. God hears our cry. When we cry out with a sincere heart, and a hungry heart, and a genuine heart, he hears our cry. When we are in pain as his kids, he hears our cry. We go on in chapter 3 of Exodus, verse 7. The Lord said to Moses at the burning bush, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry. God hears your cry. God hears when you are in pain and when you are suffering and you are struggling, God hears it. Don't ever doubt that for one minute. God hears the cry of your heart. He said, I have seen the oppression and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. And so I have come down to deliver them. The time had come, they'd cried out long enough and God said, enough is enough. And he came down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, and you know the rest. Let me assure you of something. When Jesus is the Lord of your life, and I shared this just a moment ago about having him unconditionally as our Lord, surrendered totally, fully as our Lord. When he is the Lord of our life and you find yourself in a struggle, you find yourself in a dilemma. You find yourself between a, a rock and a hard place. You find yourself with a problem without a solution. When, when Jesus is the Lord of your life and you cry out to him, he hears the cry of your heart and he comes with all the forces of heaven. Believe me, and I'm going to show you this in a moment. He comes with all the forces of heaven to equip you and to empower you and to lead you out of that oppression, out of that valley, out of that storm, and to bring you through with absolute victory. That's the truth. God comes when we cry out of our pain and our bondage. He comes with all the forces of heaven to equip us, to empower us, and to lead us out of the oppression and out of the bondage. Psalm 34 is one of my favorite psalms. I love the, the declarations that David makes here. And in verse 4, he says, I sought the Lord and he heard me. I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all of my fears. In verse 15, he says, The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. The eyes of the Lord, he sees you. He sees your pain. He sees your struggle. He sees your circumstance. He sees your family. He sees the pain in your family. He sees what it is that you're having to deal with and struggle with and battle with. He sees it all. 
and his ears are open to your cry. This is a truth right out of God's word. We have to rise up and believe it, lay a hold of it with all the tenacity we can muster and stand strong. God, you hear the cry of my heart. You see the struggle I'm in and you're coming to deliver me. Verse 17, the righteous cry out and the Lord hears. And what? Delivers them out of all their trouble. Not just some of their trouble, but out of all the righteous cry out and the Lord hears and he delivers them out of all their struggle. Verse 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous. How many can say amen to that? Some of you I know really well and I know you've been through some really tough times. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. Now some might sit here and say, well, that hasn't been my experience. You know, I, I had struggles, I've had pain, I've had, in fact, I'm in the middle of it right now and I have cried out and I have cried out and I have cried out, but I haven't been delivered from my pain, I haven't been delivered from my situation, I haven't been delivered from, let me, let me tell you something, there have been many, many times in my journey where I have felt exactly like that. But then when I sat down and I began to meditate on my journey and I began to ponder on my challenges and on the storms and on the pains that I felt and suffered and struggled with, I, I, I would ponder, I got an amazing revelation. I'm still here. So he delivered me. You say, oh yeah, but the pain's still there. Oh, absolutely, but I'm still here. I'm still standing. I'm still moving forward. I, I'm still in love with Jesus and I'm still serving kingdom purpose. I'm still here. So he has delivered me every single time. He has come and he has equipped and he has empowered and he has led me to be still standing and still progressing and still move. Is there still pain? Absolutely. Are there still challenges? Absolutely. Is there still struggle? Absolutely. But I'm still here and I'm still here because I might fall a thousand times, but he upholds me with his right hand. The problem is our concept of deliverance. When I was crying out, what I was crying out for wasn't true deliverance. If I'm going to be really honest with myself and, and do a true assessment of my journey of the last 38 years this year since I gave my life to Jesus, and it's about 35 or 36 years since I've been involved in ministry of some sort and you know, full-time ministry for the most part of that. But when I look at my journey across that time and some of the challenges that I faced, but some of the dilemmas that I found myself in and some of the pain that I, I felt and I would cry out to God, I wouldn't always get what I cried out for or what I wanted because it wasn't really true deliverance that I was crying out for. A lot of the times when I cried out, I was crying out for personal justice. A lot of the times when I cried out, I'd cry out like a son of thunder and ask for vengeance. A lot of the times when I cry out, I'd cry out for vindication or I'd cry out for the fulfillment of my own dreams and my own desires that didn't seem to be coming together in the time frame that I wanted or I looked for or I hoped for. It wasn't coming together in the way in which, like John Bevere says, God will often give you what you need in a package you don't want. What I cried out for wasn't true deliverance. At times I was crying out for personal comfort and for a sunny day where there was more blessing than pain. 
At times I cried out for relief from the pain and the pressure, but the pain and the pressure never subsided. But I'm still here. And then I came to the understanding that it's in the pain and the pressure that he makes me into the man that he created and called me and has recalled me and recalled me and recalled me many times because I have derailed with my attitude. I've derailed at times with my thinking and my, my anger and my frustration and my disappointment. He has recalled me and I just keep getting up and I just keep following him again and I'm still here. What I was crying out for wasn't true deliverance. I, I wanted relief from the pain and the pressure, but I realized that he makes me into the man he wants me to be through the pain and the pressure, through the challenge. He's building me into the man he has created and called me to be through what I face. That's why he doesn't come and lift us out. He comes and equips us and empowers us and he, he encourages us and he leads us through his Holy Spirit out. And in the process of that, he builds me into a bigger man with greater spiritual authority and intestinal fortitude that the next time the devil tries a tactic on me like he tried seven, eight, ten years ago, whenever it was, I'll be better prepared. Because I have learned in the middle of the pain to sink a well in the valley of weeping and trust and draw water from the wells of salvation and nourish my soul with the living water that, that causes me to never thirst. We've got to understand. It's not like, God, I'm in pain. Get me out. You didn't get me out. I'm going to walk away. I don't want to follow you anymore. It's like, no, he has a purpose to mold us and shape us and Prepare us, James 1.3. You haven't got this one, Ben. I didn't give it to you. It was a last-minute thought. But again, count it all joy when you fall into trials. And what an incredible statement that is. How many of us really get excited when we face a battle and a trial and something that stretches us and tests us and oppresses us and discourages us and disappointment? You know, the Bible says, count it all joy. And then he goes on and says, because the trying or the testing of our faith produces. And that's the plan of God. He wants to produce in us. He wants to make us bigger people for a bigger purpose, bigger people for a bigger day, bigger people for a bigger challenge. He wants his church ruling and reigning and to rule and reign. You've got to have something to rule and reign. He wants us to be more than conquerors and to be more than a conqueror. You've got to have something to conquer. If Margot was here, she's saying, calm down, you're getting angry. I'm not angry, I'm just passionate. She's not here. I'm going to go to town. <laughs> just don't tell her. Under the pain and under the pressure, I learned to trust him. And my, my faith goes to a whole new level. Under the pain and under the pressure, I grow in patience and stamina. Under the pain and under the pressure, I go deeper into him. Well, I'm supposed to. But the problem is there are times where I haven't and the attitude has drifted me away and I've messed up the whole process and then God has had to recall me. Get back onto the potter's wheel. Get back up here so I can reshape you. You see, that's the, the amazing thing about God. He's a redeeming God. He shapes us and molds us and we start to look really good and all of a sudden we get a bad attitude, we make a wrong choice, we take a wrong turn and the whole lump of clay just goes... <laughs> I've been there many times and I know you have too. But his grace and his goodness, he gets the lump of clay and he puts us back 
on the wheel and he says, oh, okay, let's start again. Let's start again. And molding and shaping and bending, sometimes it hurts. You know, I want to share this with you again. David McCracken's tweets this week. If you're on Twitter, follow David McCracken. He tweets every day and it's like a little bit of a daily devotional. It's an injection of insight and revelation from one of our nation's most profound prophetic voices. True spiritual authority is determined by one thing, the degree of your submission to Jesus. You know, submission is not submission until you're told no. We so often think we're submitted until we're told no, and then the attitude starts to rise. And it's the same with our relationship with God. Submission is not submission until we don't get what we want. And then we know whether we're truly submitted or not. Then we know whether we truly will say, be it done to me according to your word, like Mary said when she was told by the angel that she was pregnant with the Messiah, where Jesus said, you know, uh, let your will be fulfilled. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Dump the victim mentality. Demonic oppression, either directly or through people, can only prevail with an unsurrendered vessel. If self rules, they rule. If Jesus rules, they flee. I love that. That's truth. Get self off the throne and let Jesus rule and reign within and you'll begin to rule and reign in life. So let's get back to what we were talking about. God hears the cry of his people in Egypt. So he appoints Moses to be the spokesperson to, to Pharaoh. Heaven's spokesperson to Pharaoh. He appoints a man with a stutter. You know, God, God uses foolish things to confound the wise. And poor old Moses says, you got, you, you, you got, 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 got the wrong man, Lord. He said, no, I've got the right man. I know, I know you better than you know yourself. And so he appoints Moses to be the spokesperson to Pharaoh where Moses has to go and say, God said. You ever stopped and wondered, why didn't God just go himself? Like, why didn't he go with a display of thunder and glory and fill Pharaoh's palace and just stand there like a giant that he is? Pharaoh would have let him go like that. But he doesn't work like that. He works through people and he works through process and he works through pain because he wants to build something in us because he doesn't want robots. He wants people that are growing in him and choose to follow him and choose to take it on the chin and choose to suffer with the sufferings of Jesus so they can share in his glory. He wants people who will stand up and say like Jesus, I will keep pushing through and for the joy set before me, I will endure. That's what he's looking for. So Moses goes, He says, you go. I want you to tell Pharaoh. Pharaoh was a goose. And of course, he said no. And the short story of the whole thing is that God then sends 10 plagues onto the nation of Egypt. Not just Pharaoh's palace, the entire nation of Egypt. This was big. This was huge. He sends 10 plagues simply to get Pharaoh's attention and to say to him, I am all-powerful, Pharaoh, and I'm the one in control here. You let my people go. After the first plague, he still said no. After the second one, he still said no. After the third, the land is by this, it's absolutely devastated. It's reeling under the pain and under the suffering, but the stubbornness of Pharaoh's heart, like often that stubbornness creeps into my heart and I think, God, no, no, I don't want to do that. I don't want to go and fix that issue. I don't want to say that to those people. I don't want to address that. And he just he keeps working and working until eventually you go, okay, I'll go and do it. If we just did it right the first time, we wouldn't have to go through half the pain we go through. But 10 plagues, one after the other, and Pharaoh still says no. So then he sends the 10th and final plague the biggest of them all. 
I think the worst and the most devastating of them all, he sends the Passover. This is where Passover came from. Jesus said, I have desired, I have earnestly desired to share this Passover with you before I suffer. God says, I'm going to send, you tell Pharaoh, I'm going to send an angelic host across your nation and I'm going to kill every firstborn in your country. That's, that's big. That's heavy. Whether it's your firstborn son, your firstborn daughter, whatever, whoever, right across this nation, you don't let my people go. I'm going to kill every firstborn child in every home in the entire nation of Egypt. Then he says to the people of Israel through Moses, he says, here's what you need to do. You want to be protected from this? You need to take a lamb and kill it. And I want you to drain the blood of that lamb. And I want you to paint it on the doorposts and the door frames of your house. And when my angelic team comes through that nation, everywhere they see the blood on the doorpost, they will skip over that house and your firstborn, your firstborn will survive. So they kill a lamb, they drain its blood, they paint it on the house, and it begins one of the greatest horrific moments in human history. The death angel comes across the nation of Egypt and everywhere the blood was painted, they were covered. They were protected from death. They were protected from all that came with death. Every home around them that was not under the blood of the lamb. You get where this is going? That was not under the blood of the lamb would suffer the loss of their firstborn. Even if that firstborn was at the pub that night, even if he wasn't home, he would have just dropped dead right there on the bar stool. Wherever the firstborn was, he was going to keel over. He could have been on a holiday in, in Hawaii. He would still drop dead at the time because that death angel knew exactly where everybody was and that's why, but everyone who was under the blood of the lamb was, was, was redeemed. You know, this brings us back to the opening verse. Let's pop it back up again, Ben. Luke 22, when the hour had come, Jesus sat down and the 12 apostles with him. Then he said to them with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat, it, eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among yourselves. He goes on and he says in verse 19, and he took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. Shed for he is the lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. He is the Lamb of God that is painted over the doorposts of our heart and our life and our family. He is the Lamb of God who hung on a cross and shed his blood for us. He is the Lamb of God whose body was given for us, for our redemption, for our healing, for our, our release from bondage and oppression. He is the Lamb of God. His body was given for you. His blood was shed for you. His resurrection life is freely available for you. Romans 8.29. Watch this verse. For whom Jesus foreknew, he also predestined 
to be conformed to the image of his son so that he might be the firstborn among many. For whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In the image of his son doesn't mean you all of a sudden become gentle, meek, and mild. You know, Jesus, gentle, meek, and mild. Being transformed into his image isn't just about attitudinal change. It's a part of it. Being transformed into his image isn't just about having my needs met. It's, it's a part of it. Being transformed into his image. You see, Jesus, the Bible tells us, faced every temptation that is known to man. I don't think any of us have faced every temptation known to man. I'm not, I'm not tempted to go shopping at a spree. Margot is. I don't have those temptations. But Jesus was tempted in every manner, yet not once did he yield. Not once did he submit. Not once did he, did he collapse and fall in a heap. He was tempted with every... T- that, that is mind-blowing when you think about it. Some of the most disgusting thoughts and temptations that particularly a man can have, he had them. He said, oh, there's no way. He was, he was the saviour. He was the son of God. Well, then the Bible is a liar because the Bible says he was tempted in every way as is common to man. So he knows what it is to have sexual temptation. He knows what it is to, to have temptation for revenge. He knows what it is to struggle with those human emotions. And if I'm transformed into his image, like he overcame them, I can overcome them as well. So being transformed into his image is being transformed into the strength that he had, into the tenacity that he had, into the faith that he had, into the relationship with the Father that he had. It's all that stuff. I become like he was and I watch his life. He overcame at every turn. He got through the storm at every moment. He stood up and he stayed sweet in his spirit. He never got resentful, although he was cruelly treated and he was misrepresented. He was lied about. He was beaten. He was... He he was so unfairly treated, yet he stayed so sweet in his spirit that he could say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. When I'm transformed into his image, I can live like that too. I can live like that too. And whom he has predestined, whom he foreknew, he predestined. To be transformed. I am predestined to be transformed into that image. The image of an overcomer. The image of a lover. The image of a patient, kind, just, strong, spiritual human being. I'm, I'm being transformed into that image. The more I surrender to him, the more he's molding and shaping me into that same image. Are you getting this? Too often we have a picture of being shaped into his image as just about being smiley all the time. You know, or just being nice all the time. What would Jesus do? You know, well, half the time I don't know what he'd do. But I know he overcomes whatever he's facing. And being transformed into his image transforms me into the same kind of overcomer. The same kind of achiever. The same kind of winner that, that Jesus was. You know, predestination... There's a lot of theological theories about predestination. Some people actually believe that if you're predestined to be saved, you'll be saved. Nothing you can do about it. I don't believe that. I don't believe that's what the Bible teaches at all. Predestination says if you're not predestined to be saved, no matter how many times you go to church or how many sinners prayer you pray, you will never get saved because you're not one of the predestined ones. 
People do teach that. It's not true. It's a lie. It's not biblical. The Bible says very clearly, Scripture interprets Scripture, you see. The Bible says very clearly, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So the predestination is simply, it's God's plan. God has planned that I be transformed into his image. He has predestined. He has determined, this is what I want for Marty. This is what I want for his life. This is, but it doesn't mean it's going to happen. Because he's given me a free will. And I can make a choice that can derail the whole thing. And I have made many choices, like I said a little while ago, that has derailed me. And, and, and I've just fallen off the potter's wheel and just gone on the floor. A big lump of clay that, that was taking shape was doing so well, but all of a sudden through a, an attitude or a choice, I, I just removed myself from the potter's wheel, thought I can do this on my own. But he takes me and he puts me back on the wheel because he's a redeeming God. You know, Jeremiah chapter 18 gives us an incredible picture of how he does this. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will cause you to hear my words. Then I went down to the potter's house, and there he was, making something at the wheel. And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. My choices can mar my destiny. My wrong choices can, can interfere with what he has planned, what he has predestined for my life. It was marred in the hand of the potter, so he made it again into another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to make. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, House of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done with the clay? It's never too late. It's never too late. You say, oh, Jesus is not 100% Lord. I know that. I, I do, do a lot of life myself. I make a lot of choices myself. But when I get in trouble, I need Jesus to come. I want that to change. I, I, I need him to mold me back into his image. I, I've got a little illustration that I saw this week. And, and if I haven't ruined this, no, I haven't. This, um, this is me. I've got to be able to keep it up so you can see it. This is me, okay? And I know you can see the likeness. <laughs> you can laugh. It's you as well, okay? It's not just me. It's all of us. But this is me. And, and believe it or not, this is Jesus. Can you all see that? Down the back there. This is, this is Jesus. And whom he foreknew, me and you, he predestined to be conformed to his image. And what that means is his life impresses upon my life. And then I am molded into him. I am molded into him. And you see, I'm just pushed in there and molded in there, but there's a problem. There's more of me than there is of him. You see, this is him, and there's more of me than there is of him. John the Baptist said, he, he must increase, I must decrease. And the more of me is all the baggage I've picked up along the way. It's all the ungodly wicked ways. It's all, all the, the abuse, the suffering, the, the pain that has been mishandled in life that has poisoned me or has, has 
ruined my attitudes so that my attitudes are not godly, they're not right. And, and, and it's like, I want to be molded into his image, but I don't want to let go of everything. You know, I want the authority. I want to be an overcomer like he was. I want to be a winner like he was. I, I want to be able to face the battles and be sweet and stay happy and full of joy. I don't want people to steal my joy. I want, I want my joy to be from heaven that nobody can take away. The joy that he gives, the world can't give, and the world can't take away. The peace that he gives, the world can't give, and the world can't take away. I want that peace, and I want that. But there are some things in my life, and then the Holy Spirit comes, and he says, listen, I'm trying to mold you into my image. Well, ever you got this baggage, you'll ever over, never overcome like I overcame. And I, I, want you to, I want you to get rid of that. No, not that. No, not that. Oh, oh, oh. oh, okay, okay, okay. I'll let that go. But there's still more of me. There's still more of me. And then he comes a little while later and he says, it's time to let, oh, no, not that. Oh, that's, I, look, I need that. that. That just gives me comfort. At the times where I feel like you're not there, I just, the, the Holy Spirit, you want to be like me? You want to be an overcomer like me? You, you want to be a winner like me? You, you're going to have to let that go. <laughs> yeah, okay, okay, I'll get rid of that too. But there's still a little bit more of me. But he wants to mold me into his image and then eventually he comes and he just peels away the last piece. And then I stand up as he is. That, that's what being molded into his image means. It's being molded into him. It's being allow him to press his life into mine, to permeate every fiber of my being and make me like him. But it means letting go of stuff, stuff that we've picked up that we think we need that we don't, things that have become idols, things that replace God. When God doesn't come through when we'd like him to come through, we we go back to it and we hang on to it. He says, no, let it go. Because it's only in the letting go. When you lose your life or what your life has become, you will find life. It's only when you lose the stuff and you let it go, you will become like me. I have desired to eat this Passover with you. He was the, he's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He came and he died and he suffered so that I could live and so that he could start the process in me. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, he who began a good work in me will bring it to perfection. If I stay surrendered, if I stay yielded, if I stay moldable, moldable, everybody say moldable. If I stay there, this is my body which is given for you. This is my blood, which is shed for you. We're going to come around the communion table as we bring our service to a close. If our ushers could begin to distribute the emblems. I'm going to get our team to just lead us in a song while that happens. But you know, we're going to come around the communion table and, and I, I want you to try and remember this. This is, this is what he's trying to achieve. Anything in my life that doesn't look like him, that doesn't sound like him, that doesn't smell like him, he wants to very gently remove it. He wants to take it all away. He wants to release us from bondage. He's saying to the devil, let my people go. He's saying right now, let my people go. Let them go. Release them from the oppression. Release them from the bondage. We come around the communion table. This is the doorway into that. 
if we will appropriate this by faith. I eat and I drink life to myself. This is the blood of the lamb. I paint it over the doorposts of my soul, over the doorpost of my heart. I paint it over the doorpost of my family. I put everything about my life under the blood of Jesus. Thank you. Everything about my life under the blood of Jesus. You'll find all these things start to fall away. And we start to become like him. Strong, powerful, love-filled, love-driven, love-motivated. Jesus was anything but gentle, meek, and mild. He was a strong man. I read somewhere recently, the next time somebody asks you, what would Jesus do? Remind them that hitting people with a whip and throwing tables over in the temple is not beyond the realm of possibility. And he's not just the gentle, meek, and mild. Sometimes he was very strong. And he was very firm. But he was firm and strong with the devil. And the devil fleed every time. When he's your Lord, the devil flees. When self rules, he rules. I think I've just taken the time you were going to do a song. But that's okay. If you've received communion this morning, why don't you stand with us together? I've made a mess down here, but it's okay. It's non-toxic, non-messy. I went and I, and this will vacuum up, Perry. It just has to dry a little bit. I bought it at Kmart. Just said that, let it dry and you can vacuum it up, no problem. So you got in your hand this morning the bread that speaks to us of his body, which was given for you. The night that he was betrayed, he took this. He said to his disciples, take this, eat it as often as you do. And in so doing, you eat life to yourself. Whoever eats my body and drinks my blood, Jesus said it. Whoever does not or is not willing to is no, has no part in me. Let's eat together this morning. The, blood, uh, the body of the lamb. On the other hand, you've got the cup which speaks to us of his blood shed for you. The same night he was betrayed at that last supper, the communion table, the first ever communion table under the new covenant, the new covenant was cut. In that moment, he said, I'm about to sign this covenant in my blood. He said, as often as you do, drink this in remembrance of me. And if you do it with a heart full of faith and sincerity and a heart surrendered to his lordship, he'll keep molding you into his image and you'll become the overcomer that he's become. Let's drink together this morning. Father, help each of us in these days in which we live to live life surrendered, to live life submitted, to live life with the attitude of not my plan, not my will, 
but your plan and your will be done. What you have predestined, what you have planned for my life, I submit to it. I surrender to it. That might mean taking me through some dark places. That might, might mean leaving me feeling like I've been abandoned. That might leave me feeling like I'm suffering beyond anything I can bear. But Lord, as I stay surrendered to you, you're building something in my soul that's transforming me into the image of Jesus. I want to be a better husband. I want to be a better father. I want to be a better pastor. I want to be a better employee. I want to be a, a better friend. I want to be a better colleague. I, whatever, Lord, mold me into your image that I can be a representation of you in this world that I live in. In Jesus' name. You know, it's time to start thinking about the lost and the impact we have upon the lost rather than just entertaining the already convinced. Our mission field is where we find ourselves Monday to Saturday. Let's demonstrate Jesus by being molded into his image. Amen.